Hey, if you listen to this podcast week after week, then you will absolutely love my books. There's Travel Light, which basically gives you all of the steps for following your heart. And then there's Knowing Where to Look, which is full of inspirational stories and anecdotes that will help you shift your perspective in the most inspiring way. And for those of you who can't seem to crack the meditation code, grab a copy of Bliss More, How to Succeed in Meditation Without Really Trying, and your meditation practice will never be the same. All of those books are available on Amazon, as well as everywhere else books are sold. That's Travel Light, Knowing Where to Look, and Bliss More. All right, back to the show. For a lot of years, like after Finding Ultra came out, like we had a really hard financial time trying to figure out how to put food on the table and, and pay the bills. And it was incredibly difficult. You know, I look back on it now with, it was emasculating too, uh, you know, I have to say. And there were plenty of times where I thought about going back to being a lawyer. And it was Julie who said, you can't go backwards. You have to go forwards. And she was able to summon, you know, the, the fortitude and the faith when I lacked it. But now I look back on that time and I think that I needed to like burn a little bit more in order to emerge out of it a little bit more whole than perhaps I thought I was at the time. Hey there, at the end of the tunnel listeners, it's your host, Light Watkins, and we are back with another story behind the story of a change maker who I consider to be one of my podcast role models. His name is Rich Roll. Maybe you've heard of the Rich Roll podcast. And if you're already a fan, then maybe you also know a little bit about Rich's backstory of being a champion swimmer, turned alcoholic, turned lawyer, who ended up having a few run-ins with the law himself. And long story short, Rich hit rock bottom, but then he clawed his way towards sobriety. And after going through the recovery process, he began putting the pieces of his life back together only to realize that he was out of shape and burning the candle at both ends. And essentially, Rich was hitting rock bottom physically, particularly after one night when he could barely catch his breath while attempting to walk up a flight of stairs in his own home. So in his 40s, he dusted off his swim trunks and he started training again. His wife introduced him to a plant-based diet. And he used the combination of the healthier diet and exercise to gain back his health. Then he started participating in Ultraman races. And he essentially got into the best shape of his life. And then Rich ended up writing about how he overcame all of these rock bottom moments in his number one best-selling book, which is called Finding Ultra. And picking up where the book left off, Rich launched what became the wildly popular and inspirational Rich Roll podcast, which basically lives in iTunes top 10 lists today. And what we're going to explore in this conversation is how Rich went from being a best-selling author to starting his super successful podcast, which wasn't as linear of a process as you may think, because what Rich discovered was that even with a best-selling book, the speaking gigs and the other paid opportunities that one would expect with all that success weren't exactly rolling in. Not as much as he had hoped in order to make his ends meet because he had already quit his day job and he had a family of five to support. So Rich ended up hitting rock bottom again, but this time financially. And it got so bad that his house was in foreclosure, his cars were repossessed, 
and the city even came out and repossessed his garbage cans. And it was during that time that Rich took the first steps in starting his podcast using a friend's barn while flat broke, but still full of hope and inspiration, and most importantly, the support of his partner, Julie, and their kids. I've been honored to be featured on Rich's podcast twice before, and I have to say, after having sat down for dozens of other podcast interviews, Rich's is the one I look forward to the most. He's relatable, he's humble, he's personable, and his interviews are incredibly well-researched. And Rich is the podcaster who actually inspired me to start at the end of the tunnel. He's the reason why I do such comprehensive research with my interviews, because I know how it feels to go on a podcast and the interviewer hasn't really done any research versus how refreshing it feels to go on Rich's show. So all that to say, it's it's kind of surreal to have Rich on my podcast. It's a dream come true, and I'm honored that he accepted my invitation. And I'm super excited to share more of his fascinating backstory with you. We had an awesome conversation. And for those of you who've been thinking about getting sober or quitting your day job or starting a plant-based diet or getting into the best shape of your life or participating in an Ironman or writing a book or starting a podcast, you'll definitely get some inspiration from our conversation because there's something in it for everyone. So without further ado... Let's get into this conversation that I had with Mr. Rich Roll. Rich, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. You are probably my biggest podcast inspiration. We've had a chance to sit down a couple of times on your Rich Roll podcast. I've always really looked forward to coming on to your podcast more than anyone else's podcast. And I've done, at this point, I've done a lot of podcasts. And the thing that I find that separated your interviews from everyone else's is just the amount of research, the level of thoughtfulness, the connection that you have with your guest, and just the sincerity behind the entire experience. I think you can tell a lot about a person's state of consciousness and, and, and the things that they've gone through by the quality of their questions. And I find that the quality of your questions are in a category of, of their own. So so I'm I'm really excited about this and to kind of flip it and be the one asking you questions. And I just hope that the quality of my interview skills can, can even come <laughs> close to a 10% of what you've, oh, you've been able on. to do. And to tell your story, man, so that other people can can learn about you who don't know about you already and get excited about you and discover your your entire ecosystem of of offerings and inspiration. So thank you so much, first of all, for coming on to the podcast. Well, thank you. That's a, a really beautiful introduction. And I appreciate that. You know, I I've been doing this for a while, so I've gotten better as I go. You know, it didn't wasn't always, you know, so polished. But it means a lot that that you would say that to me because I do put a lot of care and thought and intention into into conducting the show. So the fact that you noticed that is meaningful. Thank you, and it's great to it's great to see you. I wish we could be together, but I'm honored that you asked me to come here today. Yeah, man. And I always like to start these conversations off talking about childhood. What was your favorite toy or activity as a child? I mean, I loved my bike. That was the first representation of freedom. You know, I just, I had a, like a, a Schwinn Stingray that I would ride around the neighborhood. So that was definitely a prized possession. 
I did the model trains thing. I was super into that for a while. <laughs> <laughs> Lionel trains. Yeah, yeah. I was super into the Lionel trains. What was it about the bike and or the trains that you were into? And were you doing these by yourself or did you have a group of friends that you kind of indulged in those activities? The train thing definitely was a solo affair. I think the bike was too. I'm trying to remember. I mean, I had a, it's not like I didn't have any friends. I had friends when I was a kid, but I think just being able to go out by yourself and be responsible for moving around was not a small thing for me. So my memories of it are, I don't have memories of, of like cruising around the neighborhood, like stranger things style with a big pack of kids. It was me alone or maybe me with like one other friend. And it's also interesting. They're both involving transportation, one kind of big scale transportation <laughs> yeah. and one very local. So you're on the go, apparently. <laughs> that's true. Yeah, that's true. Or wanted to be on maybe the go. Maybe I just wanted, I wanted to get out, you know, maybe. Hey there, really quickly. Have you wanted to find your purpose or be more grateful or start a daily meditation practice, but you're not quite sure where to begin? Well, if inner work is like a drop of water, thehappinessinsiders.com is like your ocean. That's my online community where you can learn real-world techniques for cultivating more fulfillment from the inside out. So whether it's learning how to manifest abundance or access your potential or overcome fear or even just start walking every day, I've got a blueprint for you, which means you no longer have to use any more shoddy guesswork and you don't have to use the lone wolf approach to improving yourself. For a small accountability fee, you'll get community, you'll get accountability directly from me, and you'll get comprehensive instructions for getting your meditation practice off the ground. And for my podcast listeners, you'll receive 30% off of the all access pass if you go to thehappinessinsiders.com right now and use the promo code HAPPY. Again, thehappinessinsiders.com. Enter the promo code HAPPY and you'll get 30% off on a yearly all-access pass, which gives you access to dozens of inner work challenges and masterclasses, such as my 108-day meditation challenge, which has an 80% completion rate. Plus, you get to join me live for weekly meditations on Zoom and much, much more. That's thehappinessinsiders.com. The code is HAPPY. All right, back to the episode. You grew up outside of D.C., which I'm familiar with. Which which suburb was it? In Bethesda. Bethesda, Maryland. Yeah, yeah. I spent So I went to Howard University and spent a lot of time in that area. You mentioned that while you were in school at this all-boys prep school, you felt insecure and uh, you were a bit of a misfit and that you were bullied. But then something else you mentioned in a previous interview, I'm not sure if you were just saying, if that was just conjecture or whatever, you said you had eye patch and headgear? Yeah. I mean, that was before high school. That was when I was in elementary school. I have a weak eye, like a wandering eye. My left eye is weak. Like I, if you, if I take my glasses off, one eye is always kind of shut a little bit more than the other. And the thinking was in order to strengthen the weak eye, we put a patch on the strong eye and force that weak eye to do push-ups. So 
that didn't work out, but I was certain to be, you know, emotionally punished for that for a long time. And when you match that with, you know, the headgear, which is like a torture device, do they even do that anymore? I don't think I don't think they subject kids to that anymore. What but were that some of one, the that one that, two that punch was uh, with the eye patch in the head. <laughs> it wasn't a, it wasn't a hot look. Let's just say that. <laughs> oh my god! Your grandfather was a uh, swimming record holder in the backstroke, apparently. Is that one of the things that inspired you to get into swimming? What's interesting about that is is that I didn't really have an awareness of him growing, growing up because he died before I was born. He died when my mother was in college. And it wasn't even until much, much later that I even knew that I, that I was named after him. His name was Richard, Richard Spindle. Yeah, he was a champion swimmer. He was captain of the University of Michigan swim team in the late 1920s. He swam for a legendary coach there called Matt Mann. And the natatorium at University of Michigan is called the Matt Mann Natatorium, which gives you a sense of like what a legend this, this guy was. And he was an Olympic hopeful, narrowly missed making the Olympic team. And I think it's either 28 or 32, I can't remember, and held an American record. Like he was quite something back in his time. But I didn't grow up with that awareness, and my parents never pushed me into swimming. I kind of naturally gravitated towards it, and it was something that I had some innate disposition for. And it wasn't until much, much later that I was even aware at all of what he had done. And that didn't really even then you know, land with any kind of meaning for me, and it wasn't until much later in life where I've spent a lot of time, you know, thinking about him and his legacy and how he lived his life. He died at 54. I'm 54 this year. So I actually think about him a lot these days and wish that I could have met him because I think that, you know, my, my hard wiring is, is probably quite similar to, you know, how he walked the earth. So you guys didn't have pictures of him around the house with medals and things like that? No, not really. But for my birthday one year, my mom gave me a framed portrait of of him and then also his high school team picture and also the University of Michigan swim team picture. So I have that in my office so I can look at it every day. Well, you and I have something in common. Athletically, we were both picked last for all the teams in school, (laughs) except I did not discover Uh swimming and find that I was moderately able to do that with any kind of competency. So you obviously found your way to the pool, but you still felt like you needed to work harder than everyone else. Where did you get that understanding of of the hard work? Yeah. So when I would swim like summer league, you know, with these like local pools in my area and there'd be these little fun swim meets and I did quite well and started to think I was kind of all that. And Then it came time to up the ante and I I decided like, I want to get good at this. Like, I think I could be good at this. And I joined a club team in my area, which was, you know, a much more kind of professional situation. That club team would go on to become one of the most prominent club teams in America and jumped in the pool and started working out with a group of kids around my age and a little bit older and quickly realized that I wasn't all that at all. Like these kids were on fire and many of them held national age group records or were competing, you know, at a very high level for a young person. And it was immediately apparent that, that I didn't, I lacked that gift, that extra gear that they all seemed to have. But I was for whatever reason, very competitive, not with others, but with myself and very determined to see if I could 
rise to the occasion and compete at the level that they were enjoying at that time. And I just started working really hard. Like I just made it a huge priority in my life as a young person, you know, going to morning swim practices before school and then after school, like I was training a lot. And I realized that I was improving quickly and I would always go the extra mile. And the more I went the extra mile by putting in extra sets or, you know, doing certain things that other kids just weren't willing to do, I was able to bridge that that kind of talent deficit gap pretty rapidly. And that was a powerful lesson for me. I was like, oh, wow, like I'm a worker. I actually like that feeling of pushing myself and seeing where that edge is, where that limit is. And that's a sensibility that has spilled into many other areas of my life. And it, it, it worked well for me in swimming. And I would say, looking back on it now, it's, it's, you know, it's a strength. But as you know, like our strengths often are also our weaknesses. So it can be problematic if it's not kept in check. That work ethic, was it reinforced by your coaches or your parents or anyone? Or was it completely something that you just kind of was self-generated, you just did it, and you just you, you saw the rewards yourself and you just kept doing it? I'd like to say that it was self-generated. It certainly didn't come from my parents overtly setting that tone, but I think there was an implicit understanding. Like the, the kind of tenor in my household was very achievement-oriented in an academic setting. Like, you're here to do well in school, you're here to advance in the world, and we're going to support you. But there was definitely an expectation, and that bar was set pretty high for me. And I struggled in school as a young person. It wasn't until much later in high school that that kind of clicked in for me. But I think on some level, you know, I was trying to please my parents or, you know, live up to this idea that, you know, I could, quote unquote, like, be somebody. And I applied that throughout the second half of high school and certainly in the pool. Yeah, James Dyson, the inventor of uh, Dyson vacuums. I heard him tell a story on the How I Built This podcast. Have you heard? Did you hear that interview? Not that one. I love that podcast, but I don't think I. I don't think I caught that one. Yeah, it's a great one. And he talks about how he used to do long distance running, and he hated doing cross country running. But what he realized was that everybody gets tired at around the same place and around the same distance. And if he could train himself to go faster at that point. And make that his sort of comfort zone, going faster at that point, then all he had to do is just keep doing that. And then eventually he would start winning races. And that's exactly what started happening. So he, I would, mean, that's- he would literally stretch himself and his endurance levels to be able to go that extra mile right when everybody else started getting tired. And it was a very strategic thing for him. That's exactly what I did in swimming. <laughs> I, 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 you know, the first thing I did was I picked the butterfly because that was the, the hardest to master and the one that no one wanted to do because it's the most painful. And then I decided to pick the 200-yard butterfly, which is the longest version of that stroke in swimming because absolutely nobody wanted to do that race. And so, I, I felt like this is going to be my thing and I'm, I'm heading where everyone else is not heading. So, I have a better chance of doing well. And in that race, I noticed that most of the swimmers would fall apart after 100 yards. And then it was just a slow downhill decline. And so, my whole thing was like, that's where I'm going to put in all this massive amount of volume so that when I hit that third 50, I can hit the accelerator and pass everybody. And that's the strategy that I held throughout my entire career. Like if I'm just fitter than everybody else, 
then when they start to peter out, that's when I rise up. How many meters are we talking about a day? In the like senior year of high school and throughout various stages of training in college, it would get up to about 20,000 yards, 20,000 meters a day. So, it's like four or five hours in the pool, plus dry land, strength training, things like that. But what I, what I was doing was doubling down on butterfly sets. So, I, I just did sets that were, you know, to this day, like I got an email from one of my coaches from high school a little while back and he's like, I still talk about those sets that you did. I'm like, dude, that was 40 years ago, you know? <laughs> I would do crazy sets like 20 times 400 butterfly, you know, just to like see if I could do it and and just get that massive aerobic engine churning. And, and you know, that that same strategy buried me. I, I overtrained, I got too tired and, you know, that kind of push it, push it, push it and never allow yourself to rest is a habit and a disposition of mine that's, that's also taken me to some not so great places. Was anyone in your ear persuading you or dissuading you from this level of volume? No, I mean, the, the training philosophy at the time was very volume oriented. So I didn't get any pushback from my coaches. They were just like, keep going. Like, that's great. My, I don't think my parents had any idea what I was doing. They're like, okay, go to swim practice. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Have fun. So you became one of the best in the region. You got a scholarship to Stanford. Yeah, no, I, I didn't get a scholarship to Stanford. I mean, when I was by the time I was senior in high school, I was one of the yeah, I was one of the outstanding swimmers in in the region, and I was recruited at lots of colleges and had scholarship opportunities at a few places. Stanford was a different situation. I was not going to get a scholarship at Stanford. I was not that good, and as much as I was able to bridge that talent deficit gap. I knew that I I wasn't Olympic material. I was never going to be able to compete at that highest level. And I kind of dismissed the idea of going to Stanford because that at the time was the most elite of the elite. Like they'd won NCAA championships and, you know, their roster was just replete with Olympic champions and American record holders and world record holders. And that was like a pipe dream. So, I never put a lot of thought or intention into that being a possibility, but I, I dreamed about it in my fantasies. But one day I just decided I was going to cold call the coach there. And he picked up the phone shockingly. And I just said, this is who I am. And this is what my times are. And like, I don't know if this is crazy, but like, I can't shake this idea that I have this fantasy about Stanford and, you know, just tell me if I'm not the material that you're looking for. And he was like, no, why don't you come out and visit? We'd love to meet you. So on my own dime or on my parents' dime, you know, I went out for a recruiting trip and I'd already committed to another school at this point. This was very late in the season and just fell in love with it the moment that that I arrived there and just knew that was going to be the place for me. And, you know, I think it it speaks also to this idea that I had of, you know, I could have gone and been a, a bigger fish in a smaller pond, but that would have robbed me of discovering what would happen if. I was a small fish in a very big pond. Like, you know, I, I wanted to see what I was capable of. And that seemed to be the best place to explore that. <laughs> you just decided to call this coach one day. I mean, in my mind, that's like the swimming equivalent of calling Nick Saban and saying, hey, I, I can kick a football really far. Can I come in? What do you think about, you know, my numbers? Did you run that by somebody? Like, how did you get that idea? 
I can't remember. I don't think that I did. I mean, maybe I discussed it with my parents, but swimming's not like football. Like it's not like there's <laughs> 10 minions in between the coach and the and the athlete. But, you know, the, those coaches pay attention to what's going on in high school swimming and they're intentional about their recruiting. And I was just somebody who was not getting recruited. So they weren't going to call me. And if anything was going to happen, I was going to have to take it upon myself. Can you talk about the Bruce Kimball backflip story? Was it in Michigan, University of Michigan? Yeah, I was at Michigan. Yeah. I went on a recruiting trip to Michigan where I think I could have been a scholarship athlete possibly. And, you know, as you might suspect, like recruiting trips are all about like show this guy a good time. You know, it's going to be <laughs> we're going to roll out the red carpet no matter who the recruit is. And I just remember there was a swim meet that afternoon. And after the meet, there was a party at I don't know if it was a frat house or somebody's house with kegs and all of that. And like, I, I was not a partier in high school. Like I was going to bed at nine o'clock and waking up at four 30 to go to swim practice and, you know, studying hard and very like directionally focused. Well, my peers, you know, in high school were going off and doing whatever. I just remember having a lot of judgment about that. Like, cause I was very serious about what I was doing, but I was at this party and everybody's drinking and, there's Bruce Kimball, who at the time was the most famous diver in the world, second only to Greg Luganis. And like, I certainly knew who he was. He was a legend. His father, Dick Kimball, was the diving coach at Michigan. And, you know, this guy, you know, it's like, if you're in this world, like, you know who this dude is. I'll never forget, he handed me a beer. And then while he held his own beer, he performed the greatest party trick that I'd ever seen in my life, where he launched himself into the air and he executed an impeccable backflip and just stuck the landing while holding his beer and did not spill a single drip of that. And I just thought that's the most incredible thing that I've ever seen. And whatever that guy has, like I want it. So I ended up shadowing him over the course of that party. And like as much as he drank, I was going to drink. And I'd had some dalliances with alcohol prior to that. So I can't say it was the very first time that I ever drank alcohol, but it was the first time that I vividly remember this overwhelming feeling that came over me, like being, and I've said this before, but it was this sensation of, of feeling like I was, you know, wrapping my body in a warm blanket. And I just felt so at ease with myself in a way that I'd never experienced before. And in retrospect, it was almost like this sense that, oh, this is how you're supposed to feel. Like now I understand that I've been walking around with all this anxiety and angst and, you know, issues with self-esteem and confusion about identity or where I fit in. And all of that just vanished. And I felt like I could breathe. And I just knew like this was going to become like a, an important part of my life. Like I knew immediately, not that like, oh, I have a problem with this, but just like this is working for me in a fundamental way. Of course, you know, the Bruce Kimball story doesn't end well. I mean, this is a guy who certainly developed into, uh, a, you know, a very problematic alcoholic and ended up while drunk driving, careening his car into a crowd of people and, and killing at least one person. I can't remember if it was one or two and ended up in jail and his face became disfigured from another such incident and his, you know, his, so his whole trajectory became quite tragic. Right. But back then that also 
gave you permission as an athlete to enjoy drinking? Because I guess there was that conflict, correct? Before that, like, I don't know if I should be drinking because it's going to impede my performance. But you see the second, the top guy drinking alcohol and doing backflips and parties. I mean, yeah, then you're, then there's permission. Exactly. Like if these guys are doing it and they're performing at this level, then I guess it's cool. You got involved in drinking pretty heavily. Ended up quitting the swim team at at Stanford after a couple of years and then lost, not knowing what you're going to do, ended up going to law school. Yeah. I mean, you know, drinking became an important part of my life, but I was pretty high functioning for, you know, a good period of time. Like I was able to still get decent grades and show up for class and, and you know, before I left the swim team, still show up at swim practice, get into law school and all that stuff. But you know, beneath the surface was a person who was be- becoming increasingly more and more dysfunctional. And there, there was just an erosion of your soul that happens with that, I think. Like, I just didn't really care that much about anything. There's there's this, like, dusting of malaise that takes place. And you end up just kind of floating through life from one fun event to the next without really mindfully anchoring yourself in any trajectory that's well-planned or well-thought-out. So, you know, I was living reactively and just focused on, you know, where I could have fun and where the next good time was. And and meanwhile, still able to, like, check the boxes. So, you know, it wasn't like my life spiraled out of control in any kind of crazy way overnight. It was just a very slow burn until the end where it was very dark and lonely and essentially pathetic. Well, you spent time in in uh, San Francisco, obviously working, and then in New York, which I love. You described it as graduate school for alcoholics, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then in Los Angeles. And I was I used to live in New York, and I stopped drinking when I was twenty six years old. So after being there for a couple of years, it just didn't make sense to me anymore. I wouldn't put myself in the I have a problem category, but I haven't really drank since then. It's been almost twenty years. But I've always thought as a sober person in places like New York that uh, these people are all alcoholics. They just don't even realize it. They're all functional (laughs) alcoholics. And you can't really see it until you're not drinking anymore, I don't think. But that was my experience. Yeah. I mean, drinking is so central to the social culture and fabric of, of New York City. And, you know, God love it. Like, I had a great time. I thought this is the best. Like, it was so fun. And I look back on that time quite fondly, as a matter of fact. But once I got sober, I couldn't go to New York for a very long time because it was so triggering. I was scared. I was scared of of relapsing if I, you know, suddenly stepped back into that culture. But now I've been sober for a long time. I have a completely different relationship with that city and I, I just, I love it. I miss it right now. I miss the vitality and the people and the energy. It gives me such a boost. I mean, the, I was, when I ran into you, it was at the the Ace Hotel that time, right? Like I fondly remember that. And I just love, you know, it's like when you're in New York City, all the synchronicities of life are like turbocharged. You know, you have those kind of encounters all the time that, are just not really part of the daily life in most other cities, certainly not in Los Angeles. And your situation after you left New York 
and moved to LA got pretty bad. You you got to a point where you had a couple of DUIs. I think you were clocking blood alcohol levels of 0.29 and 0.27. Now between 2.25 and 3, you basically are losing all of your motor skills. And if you go over 0.3, you die. You're at 0.29 and you're driving. Yeah, I was driving a car and that's legit 0.29. That, you know, maybe speaks to the level of tolerance that I had at that time. I was in, you know, some version of a blackout during both of those occurrences, which both transpired within two months of each other very late into the evening after long nights of, of partying. Both involved going to jail for the night, both involved, you know, having to deal with quite a bit of unpleasantry. The first one, I rear-ended a, a woman at an intersection, at the intersection of Crescent Heights and Melrose. And, you know, I think about that a lot. Like, it's total insanity that I was living my life that way. And yet still, after those two incidents, after the first one, I didn't even make a, an attempt to get sober. After the second one, two in two months, it's like, all right, got a little nudge from the judge, going to have to go check out AA. But I wasn't, you know, my heart was not in it. And I wasn't able to get sober or stay sober for quite some time after that. Well, you also had two really lucky breaks. The first one didn't seem like a lucky break, but it was. And that is the fact that the arresting officer recognized your law firm and knew your boss and told your boss, because you weren't planning to tell your boss, you showed up and tried to play it off like nothing, <laughs> like nothing had happened. And uh, your boss pulled you into his office and recommended an attorney for you. And then the second lucky break is somehow, I don't even know if you can connect the dots on this now looking back, but that record from your first DUI mysteriously vanished. Yeah, it's it's crazy. I got these two in a row. My boss calls me into his office on Monday morning. He got the heads up from the arresting officer. And he's like, look, man, like two of these, like I don't like to get involved in, you know, people's personal lives, but like you got a problem and you got to fix this because I was second chairing a trial for him. Like the workload was huge at the time. He gave me the name of, uh, of a lawyer and he's like, I need you to hire this guy and like deal with this. Of course, it was like crazy, you know, high priced lawyer that I couldn't afford. But this guy, you know, the first meeting that I had with him, he was like, well, first of all, you're going to jail. And I was like, I can't go to jail. What do you mean, jail? Like, I'm like a lawyer. You know, he's like, I don't care who you think you are. I'm not like a miracle worker. Like, you got two DUIs in two months at crazy high blood alcohol levels. You rear-ended this woman. Like, you will be going to jail. And that was the most terrifying thing that, you know, I could possibly imagine at that time. And what happened was some months later, the docket for the first DUI suddenly vanished or didn't appear like with the, my lawyer called me he's like they have no record that you got a DUI and he's like that never happens like I've never heard of that happening before he 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 said do you realize how lucky you are that this occurred and we were able to plead out on the second DUI avoid jail time get some public service and you know etc looking back on that you know I think how did that happen why did that happen you know, I, I, I'm left with no choice other than to just see it as this, as this gift from the universe saying, you know, we're going to, we scared you enough. We're going to spare you this aspect of it. 
but you're going to have to sort yourself out. Like this is your last opportunity before it becomes completely irreparable in your life. And I think I was able to hear that. And I, I, you know, I still didn't get sober immediately. Like sobriety is very messy and nonlinear, but ultimately I did have that day that I woke up and, and just was like, I can't do this anymore. Is that the day on the mattress in the Venice apartment? Yeah. I mean, I just, I, you know, I was working with a, an addiction therapist at that time and I was making lots of deals with him. He was like, you got to go to treatment. And finally, you know, I was able to hear him and I said, fine, I'll, I'll go. Like I woke up one day and that day wasn't that different than, than a lot of other days, but just something was a little bit different. Like my pain threshold had been crossed and just the, the pain of my daily existence was too unbearable not to do something about it. So yeah, shipped myself off to a treatment center in Oregon and made that my home for a hundred days. And that, that experience really, you know, saved my life. Why Oregon? Just the treatment center that was there was one that this therapist that I was working with had had a lot of success with in the past. And, you know, of course I want to go like, what's going on in Arizona? Like, doesn't Eric Clapton have a treatment center in like Aruba? Like, that sounds good. He's like, no, yeah. He's like, no you're going to go here. I got a bed for you. Get yourself an airplane ticket and, you know, I'll get you a ride to the airport if you need it. And this is where you're headed. And I was like, okay, fine. And initially you were only going to be there for a couple of weeks, but then they told you you had the alcohol level of guys who've been drinking for decades, people in their 60s. Yeah. I mean, I, I thought like, I can't be in this place for more than a couple of weeks. Like I got this job and I got responsibilities and, you know, I got to move and shake here. But yeah, I understand. I got to do a little bit of a spin dry and get the fuzz off my back and the whole deal. But when I got there, it just became so apparent to me that my life had taken, you know, a turn that I never would have suspected from the way they strip search you when you go in. And it's like, I'd never been treated like that before. And that's exactly what I needed. And I just thought, you know, I'm basically in a mental institution. And if I don't figure out how to get well, like this is going to be a revolving door. So I just made a decision to do whatever they told me to do. And when they said, look, we want you to write down 10 instances of, of things that went crazy wrong in your life as a result of drinking. And I spent a lot of time on that and read it aloud to counselors and, and other people in the treatment center. And after the counselors hearing that one pulled me aside and he's like, look, man, you want to leave here in 21 days or whatever? Like you can go, like you're not in prison. You can leave whenever you want. But based upon what you just shared with us, like those are the kind of incidents that happen to lifelong drinkers in their sixties. Like you have a progressed case of alcoholism. I've seen it before. Lots of people die. And if you don't figure this out, you're going to die. You're, you're, you're no different than any of these other people. So it's up to you, but we think that you should stick around. And that was scary. And I said, fine, and decided to stay and ended up living there for, yeah, it was 101 days or something like that. You had an epiphany once you got out and you were sober. You had an epiphany about your career choice. Well, I knew that I'd picked the wrong career path for myself, but I, I, I had no idea what else I could possibly do. I, you know, and, you know, honestly, like, like I'd never really spent any time thinking about that. I was just on this track of, you know, what I thought was quote unquote success or befitting of somebody with my level of education. I love swimming. When that was over, that left a void. 
I couldn't find anything to supplant that level of passion and, you know, emotional engagement. And I just thought, well, I'll go do this. And everybody else probably hates it as much as I do, but this is just what I'm going to do. And, you know, I had to do that for a long time until I had another bottom where I realized, you know, now I'm having an existential crisis and need to make some changes. So my pivot away from being a lawyer took, you know, many, many, many years. I mean, I didn't officially stop being a lawyer until 2012. I did it in various capacities and, you know, left law firm life many years ago. But after that rehab experience, I went back to the law firm where I worked and continued to work. They had supported me when I was gone and it felt like the right thing to do to at least go back there and work as long as I'd been gone. And I think I was there for maybe a year before I ended up leaving. And continued being a lawyer, you know, on my own and then with partners and some other kind of iterations on that, but spent the 10 years following the treatment center just trying to repair and rebuild my life, you know, trying to make up for lost time and be the person who had so much promise when he was a young student at Stanford. And that's all I was thinking about. It wasn't about what makes me happy or what's my passion or anything like that. And I just, you know, I, I applied that, you know, all outwork everybody else mentality to this. And that got me to a certain point. And then that car crashed into a brick wall shortly before I turned 40, where, you know, this existential crisis that had been brewing kind of collided with a health scare. I'd gained a bunch of weight. I was about 50 pounds overweight and just, you know, wasn't taking care of myself, eating a junk food diet and, you know, kind of semi-depressed and and detached from my life in many ways, which I think is odd because if you were to look at me from the outside, everything looked good. Like I met Julie, you know, we were, we got married and we had this lovely home and we're building a family. Like I had a lot of good in my life. It's not like my life was bad, but it was more of this spiritual existential crisis that I was having, this sense, this powerful sense that you know, I picked the wrong lane. Like there's something that's not working in my life and, and a lot of confusion about how to address that. And that incident, you know, like walking up a flight of stairs, winded, out of breath, tightness in my chest and, 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 and thinking about my grandfather who had died of a heart attack, you know, as a young person. And, you know, the fact that I was never able to beat him because he died so young, that all became very present, you know, for me. It, it was a moment that was very similar to that day that I woke up and decided to go to the treatment center. It was like, and I had that awareness in the moment. I was like, this is a very similar sensation that I'm having. And because I had made that shift 10 years prior and that decision had changed my life so dramatically, I already had a sense that not only was this a gift, but I was being given another opportunity to do yet again something that could dramatically change how I was living. And I didn't know what that was, but I just, it was a, it was just a palpable sensation that I had. You had already been married at that point. I, I'm assuming you'd already seen Julie heal her, herself of her cysts by changing her diet and all of that. Do you have an understanding, even a loose understanding that diet may have something to do with the pain in your chest or the way you were feeling, or was that completely still kind of in you're in denial around all of that? No, I mean, I, I knew it intellectually. <laughs> I wasn't interested in changing any of those behaviors. And it, it is funny because Julie, you know, was such a healthy person and we met in yoga. Like I, I was, you know, on, in my own way, in my own rudimentary way, like I was trying to connect with spirituality and growth. I just was very truncated, you know, at that time. Like 
sobriety introduced me to these tools and, you know, as challenging as they were to kind of really understand, like I knew there was truth in there and I knew that I needed to change how I was living my life socially and I couldn't go to bars. So I got into yoga, you know, that's where I meet Julie. It's like, so it was all very, you know, at a very base level, but you know, those are the, that's the way you plant these seeds. And sometimes they take a long time to grow. And Julie was always eating a very clean diet and she always was pursuing personal growth in her own way. But that was always just her thing. Like, you know, I'm over here doing my, you know, my guy thing. And it wasn't until, you know, I had that moment where I became interested in making some of those changes. And, and you know, related to that is, you know, something Julie talks about a lot, which is that she would always be encouraging me like, hey, maybe you shouldn't go to Jack in the Box. Like, let me cook you this. Or I put this book on your book stand. You know, it might be helpful to you. But for whatever reason with me and maybe, you know, other people can relate to this. Like when you're in a relationship and someone, it, she was never nagging or trying to foist anything on me, but it's when somebody else is suggesting it, it's different from when it's your own idea. And the more she kind of did that, the I think the less receptive I became until she just decided like, I'm not going to do that anymore. I love this guy the way he is. I need to detach from any, desire or need for him to be any different than he is and it's going to be cool and she did that in a in a in a meaningful way not in like a lip service way and i think i felt that energy shift suddenly there was a void and it was like oh wait like i have to take responsibility of about these things for myself and that really flipped the mirror and i think expedited the process of me, you know, grabbing onto some of these tools that I had been reticent to avail myself of prior. Aside from the yoga, were you doing any running or any kind of weekend warrioring or what was your work workout routine like? No, not really much of anything. I mean, the occasional run here and there, but I was just becoming like a hefty couch potato. I mean, I was never like obese or anything like that, but I was just like thick. You know, I had like the big head you know, I look like a lawyer who, like, works too much, basically. So you do a fast, a week-long fruit and vegetable fast. Yeah, that was the first thing that I did. I mean, I, I just remember knowing, like, I needed to do something right away to capture this motivation that I had, this, like, little spark of inspiration and that that thing was going to have to be difficult so that it would engage all of my senses. And a fast seemed like a good way to do it for a couple of reasons. I mean, first of all, I knew I needed to change my diet. And it was the closest thing to like going to detox for drugs and alcohol. I mean, that was my paradigm, right? That was the one experience that I had that I could relate to. And I thought, I need to replicate that treatment center sensibility or protocol and do it for like my lifestyle habits. When you go to a treatment center, you show up drunk or high, they throw you in detox and nobody talks to you until you sober up. Uh, they remove the drugs and alcohol. They deprive you of those. And I thought I need to deprive myself of these foods that I'm eating compulsively. Not because I think I have, I needed to like have toxins removed. Like I just, I needed, I needed to like put distance between me and those habits. And so that's what I did. And that was very difficult because I'd never gone a single day without eating solid food. But as anybody who's done one of these things knows, 
the lights start to go on after a couple days. And I just remember the fourth, fifth, certainly by the seventh day, I just felt lit up. Like my energy levels were crazy. I was sleeping better. I had a clarity of mind and just a level of vitality that I couldn't remember feeling since I was like a teenager. And that was kind of an awakening for me. And then it became about trying to figure out a way of, of eating that could give me that feeling or allow me to enjoy that kind of energy level more consistently in my life. When you went for your first run, did you have running shoes? Yeah, I did. I had running shoes. They weren't getting used a lot, but I had a, you know, I had like an old pair of running shoes laying around. just like most people probably do. I remember going for my very first run and cramping up and, and it was in Los Angeles and I wasn't a runner and I didn't, I never really done a lot of endurance sports, but it just wasn't a very enjoyable experience. But the person who I was with was very patient with me and made me feel really good about everything. And I ended up doing it again a couple of days later and then again and again. And next thing I knew, I'm running four and five miles a day. I'm curious, what was your experience like getting into the running? I thought you were going to tell me that that you realized it was because you were wearing like Converse All-Stars or something. <laughs> <laughs> but I ended up getting the gear yeah. later after I decided, okay, I'm right. doing this. This is, right. this is fun. Yeah. I mean, as I kind of navigated through playing around with different ways of eating, things were sort of at a plateau during that, that phase until I adopted a plant-based diet. And then I was able to really feel that I, I was able to succeed in, in finding a, a way of eating that really agreed with me and, and gave me that sense of energy and vitality. And, and that's when, you know, I got really interested in fitness again. And it was very casual. You know, I just wanted to, it was, it was a vanity thing as much as anything else. Like I wanted to feel good in my body, but I really wanted to lose this weight. I was just tired of, of feeling fat and the weight came off pretty quickly. And the fitness returned relatively quickly as well. But it was it was just for fun and casual. Like there was nothing competitive about it. But I did have another kind of, you know, epiphany moment that I think you're alluding to, which is I can't remember how long it was, maybe four or five, six months into this whole journey where I went out for a trail run anticipating to just run five or six miles, maybe an hour or something. And I had that experience that probably most runners who spent a lot of time running have had at one time or another, where you just, you, you kind of drop into this flow state and you feel bulletproof, like you can run all day. And I had never experienced that before. And I just engaged it and kept going and going and going and just thought, this is unbelievable. And ended up running 24 miles that day, which was far beyond anything I'd, I'd ever done in my life. And that's when it clicked in for me, like, wow, this is crazy. Like, maybe, you know, I have some kind of, I'm tapping back into that swimming endurance aerobic engine that I have. And, you know, I feel like I left unfinished business on the table as an athlete because I walked away from a sport and it was compromised by my alcoholism. And, you know, being 40, it's like midlife crisis. Maybe I'll do an Ironman kind of thing. I mean, that was probably, you know, a big part of it as well. But that triggered my interest in stepping into the world of, of endurance sports. That was kind of like the first impetus. Yeah, it seems like every change of a decade, you submerge yourself into another direction of sorts. And you ended up doing an Ultraman. Can you just give a brief explanation of what that means to do an Ultraman? 
Right. So, so most people are familiar with an Ironman. It's been called like the, the most difficult endurance race on the planet. It's a 2.4 mile swim, 112 mile bike, and then you run a marathon. You do it all in one day. It's incredibly difficult. I ended up specializing in a race called Ultraman, which is a little bit more than a double Ironman distance race that's conducted over three days as a stage race. So the first day you swim 6.2 miles and then you race your bike 90 miles. Then you go to sleep, you wake up the next day and you race your bike 171 miles. And on the third day, you run 52.4 miles, a double marathon. And you do that by circumnavigating the the big island of Hawaii, which is pretty freaking big. I've done that race a couple times. I distinguished myself as an athlete in that race. And yeah, that's what an Ultraman is. The only race you had done prior to that was a triathlon that you didn't even finish. Well, I'd done a couple local triathlons. Like I did the one down in Malibu at Zuma Beach, but the I tried to do a half Ironman and I didn't finish this race called Wildflower. I'd never done an Ironman before. So it was kind of insane that I went straight from not finishing a half Ironman to doing an Ultraman. But I don't know, man. I just felt like that's what excited me, you know? And, and, and I think perhaps you'll appreciate this light. I didn't want to get into that world to look at race times or age group rankings or any of that kind of competitive stuff. For me, endurance in the ultra endurance world was this template for me to engage in self-exploration. And a big part of that was spiritual exploration. All of that time alone with an elevated heart rate in this kind of semi, you know, it's not meditation, as you know, but there is a, a, a quelling of the monkey mind, like the, it's an active meditation state. And I had a lot of confusion and I was trying to solve these problems about who I wanted to be. And for me, that journey into that world served that process. And what struck me about Ultraman and why I was so attracted to it, I think, is that, you know, the first article that I read about it, I stumbled upon an article about it, and it just, it looked like a spiritual odyssey to me. It wasn't really a race. The way it was described by the race director was, yeah, it's a race and people win and all of that, but this is about getting 35 athletes hand chosen from around the world and their crews and taking them on this journey around this island so that at the conclusion of which every single person involved with it is transformed. And, and that really spoke to me. And that's very different from you're going to do this race and you have to make this qualifying time. Like I wasn't interested in that. What I was interested in is that process is undergoing like, like volunteering for something very difficult so that I could be transformed. And this really changed your your life. You ended up getting out of well, being unenthusiastic about being a lawyer to the point where you basically were an ultra athlete practicing law on the side of the road <laughs> from your, <laughs> yeah. your road bike uh -huh. when you'd have meetings and stuff like that. You did a second Ultraman, a third Ultraman. You did the Epic Five, which is five Ironmans and five Hawaiian Islands in less than a week. And you ended up writing this amazing book chronicling the entire journey that went on to become a bestseller. And yet at the same time, you were, I guess Julie called it, you were experiencing a dismantling of sorts. Well, yeah. I mean, in all of that great stuff happened. It was an unbelievable time. And I knew 
that, you know, I was being called to do something else. Like I was getting all this media attention because how does this lawyer who's in his mid forties, who doesn't need any, any animal products, how is he performing like this? People were curious about that. So I was getting a bunch of attention and that led to the opportunity to write this book. The book did well. And I knew like, well, how do I translate all of this into some kind of new vocation. And there wasn't really a roadmap for doing that. I mean, you know, I got paid to write the book, but it wasn't enough to support, you know, a family of six people. Nonetheless, you know, I was willing to make that leap of faith and step into it, trusting that the phone would ring or the right door would open and that somehow by trusting that I would be taken care of. And that indeed proved to be the case, but it just didn't happen on the timeline that I would prefer. And and as a result, for a lot of years, like after Finding Ultra came out, like we had a really hard financial time trying to figure out how to put food on the table and, and pay the bills. And it was incredibly difficult. You know, I look back on it now with, it was emasculating too, uh, you know, I have to say. And there were plenty of times where I thought about going back to being a lawyer. And it was Julie who said, you can't go backwards. You have to go forwards. And she was able to summon, you know, the the fortitude and the faith when I lacked it. But now I look back on that time and I think that I needed to like burn a little bit more in order to emerge out of it a little bit more whole than perhaps I thought I was at the time. This is interesting. So you cer- ceremoniously, according to the story, I could be wrong, you ceremoniously did not renew your law license (laughs) so that you made yourself choiceless in not being able to go back to practicing law. At the same time, I'm assuming you were thinking about podcasting because you had already been listening to a ton of podcasts on these long ass runs and Ultramans and stuff that you were doing. How long before you actually recorded that first podcast, which we'll talk about in a second, were you thinking about it before that moment in 2012? I mean, I thought about it for for quite some time, but I never really thought about it seriously. Like, you're correct in that I was an avid fan of the medium and a very early adopter. And that was very much by dint of the fact that I was spending so much time training alone and I needed something to occupy my mind when I was out on a, on a bike ride all day long. And I just thought, this is the most incredible medium. For free, I can listen to all of these people have amazing conversations. Why isn't everybody listening to like at that moment, you have to remember there was no iPhone. If you wanted to listen to a podcast, you had to download it on your laptop and then you had to bounce it to an MP3 player and create a playlist. And it was like a whole thing. You had to be very intentional about it and put some time into it. And that's of course why probably more people weren't doing it. But I was the only person I knew that, that listened to podcasts like point blank. So Although I thought about doing it, it just seemed like a weird hobby. Like, this is what, like, guys who hang out at Radio Shack are into. You know, it's (laughs) like, you know, it wasn't like a vocation or anything like that. But it wasn't until I was living in in Kauai, our family had an opportunity to go to Kauai and and help with a friend who was trying to develop his property there. And And I started to feel a little bit of island fever, like disconnection from society and I'd worked so hard to kind of create some things and I was I was stymied in trying to figure out what my next move was and and I think just out of 
creative desperation, I finally said, well, I'll finally like, let's do a podcast and see how this goes. And that's how the first episode started. And it didn't start with, I'm launching a podcast and this is what I'm doing. It was like, well, let's record a conversation and like put it up and like, who cares? And we did that. And it, I was like, that was fun. Let's do it tomorrow. And it really, I really didn't think about it any further down the line than that. Wait, but hold on, man. You were in Hawaii because your whole life was basically falling apart. Yeah, that's <laughs> true. We skipped over that part. <laughs> it's like that movie Gravity. You yeah. see Gravity with Sandra Bullock yeah. where the space station is being destroyed by the asteroids yeah. and then they have to go to the other space station with a with a fire hose. That was what was happening in, in Malibu Canyon. You guys had said on that first episode, you, you said, oh, we're living a more extravagant life than we should, which is a really nice way of saying <laughs> yeah. they just repossessed our trash cans because yeah. we couldn't afford the trash. And we were having to put it in our minivan to drive it to the garbage and repossess our cars and all this stuff was happening. I mean, the reason I want to bring this up is because a lot of people would say, yeah, I'm in all this debt. I'll start my podcast once I get out of debt. Once I stop being so busy and crazy and have all these demands, but you actually were able to do that while you were going through this, this crazy dismantling of sorts. Well, a couple, a couple thoughts on that. I mean, A, I didn't start it because I thought it would be a business. It was a creative outlet, you know, for that angst. And Yes, we were having a really hard time. We had cars repossessed. We couldn't pay for our trash bins. You know, our, it was m more likely than not that our house was going to get repossessed. And God bless Chris Jabe from Common Ground who invited my family out and, you know, let us stay in his yurts and basically gave us a home for a period of time. I mean, I, I without that, I mean, I don't know what would have happened. He was a godsend in that regard. Well, Julie had indoctrinated you in this idea that the universe is conspiring for you. Yeah. According to your, your, yeah. Your, and I was, I was starting to think that's a bunch of bullshit because <laughs> we were getting <laughs> hammered, <laughs> you know, but I also knew this light and that is that the success of finding ultra, I think is in large part due to the fact that I was willing to be vulnerable and sharing my story. And, and that's what people connected with the ultra stuff and all of that is great and interesting. But, but I think that was what really connected with, a certain audience. And I felt like podcasting is a good forum for that. And I wanted to use it as a means to extend that kind of storytelling and, and vulnerability. And that's another part of the puzzle that's interesting is that you'd spent years at this point telling your story in AA meetings and listening to other people tell their story. And you, 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 you obviously had a, a uh, lots of opportunities to refine your story. When you talk about being vulnerable and, and impactful and telling your story, what is it that you think is happening in those places that's not necessarily happening outside of those places that can make you a more effective podcast host? I, I just have so much love for that program. And it basically instills you with such a profound depth of empath empathy for your fellow man because you see people come in utterly broken hopeless with nowhere to turn and a group of people surround that person lift them up help them in the most selfless way and as people slowly begin to repair themselves they 
get up and share their story. And it's so courageous to see somebody honestly relate, you know, the darker aspects of of their behavior. It, it requires an extreme amount of vulnerability. But what happens in a group setting is that that deeply connects you to everybody else. Like it, it's just a very special thing. And and I do think when I started the podcast, I wanted to give people who aren't part of that and don't need to be part of that a sense of of how powerful that is. You know, and I really think it's a it's a beautiful antidote to what separates us. It's a reminder that we're all more alike than than we want to believe. You know, we're all focused on what distinguishes ourselves from each other and arguing about the margins. But in truth, we are all one. And and that experience of, of hearing people tell their stories and doing it in that manner, you know, inspired me to, you know, th- I've done that as well. And I know the impact that it has on other people. And I know the impact that it's that it's had on me. And, you know, I, I think, you know, regardless of whether you have an, an, an addiction issue, we could all use a little bit of, of that. It's very, you know, it's very healing. I did, I did want to infuse the show with that sensibility. You also mentioned that the best podcasters have experience with AA. Yeah. Or at least at that time. Yeah. I think there's, there's a lot of podcast hosts <laughs> that are in 12 step programs. They tend to be very good hosts because they're comfortable with their vulnerability. They're comfortable in their own skin as a result of the work that they've done. And I think that that makes them interesting and also interested. You know, a good podcast host is truly interested in the person that they're talking to. They're present for that, for that experience. And those are skills that I learned, that I learned in those rooms. And when you look at the, the, you know, podcast landscape right now, like, I think that's a, you, you know, I think Dax Shepard is a great podcast host. And I know, and I'm sure he would admit or say that a big reason why he's able to like he always leads with with he always leads with vulnerability he creates a safe environment for his guests to express themselves and he's clearly comfortable with who he is and those are things that you learn as a result of being in that program after your very first episode that you did in that in that warehouse you could hear the echo <laughs> of the warehouse you had another lucky break Two things happened. You said you guys were featured on iTunes' list of, of new and notable podcasts. Do you have any idea of how that happened after one episode? Yeah, a couple of things. I mean, first of all, in 2012, podcasting was very different than it is now. There just weren't a lot of people creating new shows at the time. And that's not to say there weren't interesting people doing cool things there. I mean, Joe Rogan was already doing his show. A lot of comedians, Adam Carolla, Kevin Smith, like there were people very active on that platform, but not a lot was happening in the kind of health and wellness space at the time. And it just didn't take much to distinguish yourself. Like if you had a new show and you had some semblance of people who were already interested in what you had to say, you could quickly and immediately, you know, rise to the top of the charts. And the algorithm already overly inflates new shows for a period of time for discovery purposes, which I think is a good thing. So new people can discover new shows. And so the show immediately like, you know, was way up at the top of the rankings and like number one in health. And I thought I might've gotten a f- 1500, you know, listens or something like that. Like it wasn't nothing, but it certainly wasn't deserving of being at the top of the charts and laughable in 
what the ecosystem looks like now. But that was very encouraging for me to get that kind of external boost and gave me the encouragement to keep going. And you and I met 172 episodes in. We met at the Mind Body Green conference, the Revitalized conference, and then we ran into each other at the Ace Hotel. So you'd already done well over 100 episodes at this point. I just pub- self-published my book, The Inner Gym, and I saw you. It was around midnight, and you were downstairs at the community table. There may have been some music or something playing, and you were buried deep into your laptop. And it came out that you were, I think you were writing an intro or something like that for one of your upcoming episodes, which is interesting because, you know, I think a lot of people may think, well, I'll do a podcast. I'll do maybe 75. By the time I get to 75 episodes or 100 episodes, I can start outsourcing everything. And and one thing that I heard Jerry Seinfeld, who's now on the podcast circuit, say the other day was that the reason his show is so successful was because he micromanaged every single word, every line, every casting, every every take. And I'm just curious what your relationship has been to being very hands-on in terms of, of the quality and, and, the, and ultimately of the success of your podcast. Yeah. I mean, that's something I think about every single day because I am a perfectionist. I am a control freak. And I think that those are qualities that led me to crafting, you know, a, a good show, but also today are my biggest limiters in terms of growth. And there's tension there. Like now I'm in this warehouse studio that we just moved into and I have people that help me and my job is to empower them and stay out of the minutia that don't matter. And then I find myself in my office, like editing photos and saying, this photo, the color's not quite right on this photo for the website. And I'm like, what am I doing? But I can't help it because I do care. And when you did see me that night, yeah, I think I was, I had to get a show up that night and the internet wasn't great in my hotel. So I walked down the street and went into that hotel so I could get a better Wi-Fi signal. And I was trying to produce a show. And I, to this day, I have people that help me. I don't do the audio editing and things like that, but there, there's no aspect of the show that my fingerprints are not on. And, you know, when I began, I did everything. I was editing the audio in GarageBand and, you know, getting everything up. So I know every facet of the whole thing. And sometimes it's difficult for me to step back and, and, you know, let the very skilled people that I, that I'm grateful to be working for, like do their thing, but it's your name on it. Right. And that's what goes out to the world. And to this day, I can't imagine anyone else writing the intro or sharing the thoughts about the guests. Like that's a very personal thing. And the authenticity of what I do is at the core of the show. And that's something that can never be outsourced. So I sort of set myself up because I've set this bar and now I have to, you know, hit that bar with every episode. Like when you introduce me and you're like, oh, you're so thought you're thoughtful. It's just like, that just means that I have to keep being that way for every guest, you know? So I have sustainability issues. Like I, I you know, I'm about to take in January, I'm going to take some time off. I took all of December off, but I have to force myself to back away, you know, and allow myself to reboot because it is a grind. Like I work incredibly, incredibly hard, you know, usually seven days a week. It can be relentless. So, you know, my goal for 2021 is to figure out 
systems that allow me to still inject the show with everything that's important, but also do it in a more sustainable way that, you know, gives me the kind of recovery that I need in, in, in order to continue for this journey for many years to come. Alain de Botton has this quote that reminds me of what you just said. He says, there's no such thing as work-life balance. Everything worth fighting for unbalances your life. Yeah. Hundred percent. I I hate this subject of balance. You know, <laughs> <laughs> right? I don't know any balanced people, including myself. If you're doing anything that's helping people, like in a real tangible way, or if you're doing anything to transform yourself, there really is no sense of balance in your life, and I'm okay with that. Look, doing anything well, doing anything exceptional, certainly is hard. And it's going to throw your life out of balance to execute that in a manner that you feel capable of doing. And, and so, for me, I'm comfortable with that as well. But that doesn't mean, you know, I have other things in my life that are super important to me. Other than the, I've got kids, I've got a family, I've got, you know, so I can, I live out of balance on the day to day and perhaps on the week to week, but telescoping up, my life is in balance, you know, in the, in the macro, like I have to shift gears and redirect that level of intentionality into other things. So, you know, I know how to put the brakes on and, you know, sometimes I'm better at it than others, but it, it, it is a challenge because I'm definitely somebody who's hardwired to go all in on one thing and just mute out the world. You just came out with a new book, Voices of Change. Was that a self-published book? Yeah, we self-published it. You, you got a little inspiration from Goggins to self-publish your own book? Well, I mean, certainly, you know, certainly the mind gem, of course. Certainly, you know, David Goggins, I, his book is probably the most successful self-published book of all time. It's incredible what, what he accomplished with that. With this book, it's a little bit different in that it's basically a compendium of the podcast with excerpts from 50 guests over the years, including yours truly. You're, you know, you have a great excerpt in there and I appreciate you contributing to the book with beautiful photographs. And it's really a keepsake for the hardcore fans and kind of an introduction for people who are unfamiliar with the show to get a sense and a flavor of what it is. And it's a book that's expensive to produce because it's, you know, heavy and colorful and a book that, that a publisher probably would be unwilling to get behind at an advance that would make sense for me. And in that respect, it's like the perfect book to self-publish because it's not intended to be a New York Times bestseller. It's not about some big pre-order campaign or, or you know, making lists. It's really just a beautiful work of art that I wanted to offer for people that that are interested in what I'm doing and also something that I wanted to have complete control over, the control freak in me, wanted <laughs> to have complete control over every element and facet of it. I wanted to remove all of the middlemen and make it available directly to my audience. And then year after year, you know, we can put a new one out every year and just continue the volumes and own it outright and make a box set. And that's exciting to me. And I would say that you sacrifice reach because the book's not, you know, we're not selling it on Amazon and it's not in bookstores. So not as many people are going to be exposed to it. But in return, there's a satisfaction with producing something that is entirely, you know, the result of, of your own efforts that creates a connection to the material that 
you know, I've had great experiences with publishing books with big publishers, but it is a different feeling. But you have to create a lot of infrastructure. I mean, we're doing, you know, from design to production to to all of the fulfillment and the shipping and the customer service and all of that. So it's certainly a lot of work, but it's been a really cool ride and we've learned a lot. And I, you know, I love the book and I'm so proud of it. And you're on your second printing. I think you guys sold out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So that you got to anticipate how many people you think are going to buy it. And then, you know, if you run out, it's like two months before you restock. So we're in the process of restocking. We'll be shipping again in February, but we're kind of temporarily out of stock, which isn't great going into Christmas. (laughs) (laughs) Well, man, I love love the initiative. I also love the huge live podcast that you did in the, in the theater. How many seats were in that theater? It was like 1200. Yeah. 1200. Yeah. Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah. That was an amazing evening. You're leading the way. And like I said, you were one of my inspirations for, I've been thinking about doing a podcast forever, but I just, you know, when you look at the people who are doing it at such a high level with a certain quality and I'm, I'm a very detail-oriented person myself and, and like to, to uphold a certain quality. It's just, you know, it's there really is no good time to get started except for just, just to get started. And it was refreshing to go back and listen to a few of your early episodes and hear how bad it is. <laughs> hear how, how much things have changed. <laughs> yeah. Well, you, you learn in the doing, you know. Yeah. You could sit around in analysis paralysis and days and me- weeks and months and years go by. You get better in the doing. And the truth of the matter is, you know, I think this is a great medium for you, Light. And the truth of the matter is nobody is you. You know, there are other people having conversations, perhaps more now so than ever, but nobody is you. And you bring your, you know, beautiful sensibility and unique voice to to this. And you have a lot of people that care about your perspective. I mean, I love watching your thoughtful videos on Instagram where you reflect on, you know, issues of the day and things that people, you know, are thinking about. And you have such a clarity in your thought and in your communication. And I think that's going to bode well for you as a podcast host. Thank you. Thank you so much for saying that. That means a lot. And I want to offer one reflection back to you, tying it back to (laughs) your favorite activity as a child. As I mentioned, both riding bikes and playing with the train sets are involving transportation, but really it's involving pathways. And particularly with the trains, you know, what, what's fun about playing with those train sets is that you can change the tracks and you can, you can have the, the train do, you know, different things based on what kind of experience you want to have with it. And I feel like that's what you've done so well in your life is you've been able to change directions in ways that have not only completely altered what your experience has been, but also in a way that's inspired other people to be able to look at the body of your, your entire body of work and, and see that, hey, look, wherever you are on the spectrum, Rich Roll has been there <laughs> and you, there's a way out and there's a way back to your heart and there's a way to your voice and there's a way to your internal guidance. And so I highly recommend that everybody pick up your first book, Finding Ultra, because we could do a whole podcast just off of those stories, and then also pick up your most recent book and start listening to the podcast. I have a question. 
let's say no one's ever heard of you before. They heard this podcast. They're super excited now about Rich Roll. What would you say are the top three interviews out of the 560 something that you've done <laughs> or that they should start with? Well, you could start with one of the Light Watkins interviews, right? Did we do three, two or three? <laughs> I can't remember. Two. We did two. Yeah. We did two. We did numbers 172 and 357. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'd like to get you back on as well. I reached out to you when you were in Atlanta because I wanted to do yeah. it in person, but we'll, well make that happen again soon. Okay. May, so you may All right, get, well, we'll do it then. Yeah, cool. Me. I mean, it really depends on what your interest is. You know, I've had a lot of people on to talk about mindfulness and meditation. You know, everybody from, I've had Michael Gervais, who's a sports psychologist who talks about mindfulness in, in the athletic context, the performance context. I've had, you know, Andy Puttacombe from Headspace and Bob Roth, the, you know, the TM guy. So there's plenty to choose from in that category, but I've had neuroscientists and athletes and all kinds of people. So it's tough to give a recommendation of start here. But I think that my some of my favorite are just these inspirational stories of people who have transformed their lives in, in, in magical ways. It's fun and gratifying to talk to well-known people. You know, it's like doing a podcast with Matthew McConaughey. Like, it's exciting. You know, it's cool. <laughs> but honestly, the, 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 the episodes that mean the most to me are when I, I find somebody who, who, who isn't, you know, a well-known person. And I just think they have an amazing story. And I, I, I get the honor and the opportunity to advance that person's story or amplify their, that person's story. And a couple that come to mind on that tip are Josh Lajani, who's a, become a dear friend of mine, who was like a 400-pound dude living in Southern Louisiana who took it upon himself to change his life and is now this amazing ambassador of health and, and ultra marathon runner. So he would be a good one. And, and uh, John McAvoy, who is a London born and bred bank robber who grew up in like a crime family who ended up in a life sentence and got out and became an Ironman triathlete and a, a voice for our criminal justice reform. And it's a very cinematic and just absolutely captivating story. So if you're into those kind of transformation stories, those would be two I would suggest. Beautiful, man. Well, thank you so much, Rich. We made it to the end of the tunnel. Appreciate you, man. And I look forward to uh, crossing paths with you again very soon. Cool. Much love, Light. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Rich Roll. You can follow him on social media at Rich Roll. And Rich also has an amazing new book called Voicing Change, which features yours truly, as well as several other guests from his podcast interviews over the years. It's a beautiful coffee table like book. It's full of rich photos and timeless wisdom that Rich personally curated from several of his most impactful interviews. And you can find more information about Voicing Change at richroll.com. And if you haven't done your good deed for the day yet, I wanted to give you an opportunity to do so. If you're listening to this podcast on Apple's podcast app, please do me a favor. Glance down at your screen. This is only going to take a few seconds. Click where you see at the end of the tunnel, which should be in purple, and then scroll down and just keep scrolling past all of the previous episodes down to where it says ratings and reviews. And you're going to see an outline of five stars. All I'd like for you to do is just tap the star on the far right. And 
If you did that, you just submitted a five-star review for this podcast, which means more people are now going to be able to discover this and other conversations that I've had with various guests. And if you have just a few more seconds, click that link that says write a review and leave a quick one-line review. I love this podcast. Light is awesome. You have to listen to this. Whatever comes to mind. If you can do that for me, together we can continue spreading these stories far and wide and helping to inspire more people. And I'll keep putting out these episodes and you can really help me by letting the people at Apple know that you find the content valuable enough to leave a review. And that's how new podcasts like At the End of the Tunnel are going to be discovered by a wider audience. So I thank you in advance for taking a few extra seconds to support me in that way. Every review truly counts. You will also find the show notes and a transcript of my interview with Rich Roll at lightwatkins.com tunnel. While you're there, you'll see a pop-up link to sign up for my daily dose of inspiration email, which is a short and sweet daily motivational message that I've been sending out every morning for years. It's finally being turned into a book, which is called Knowing Where to Look, 108 Daily Doses of Inspiration, which is coming out in May of 2021. So be on the lookout for that. Thanks again, guys, for taking the time to listen and for sharing this interview with your friends and followers. Always tag me on social media at Light Watkins so I can shout you out. And in the meantime, I'll see you back here next week with another amazing story from the end of the tunnel. Have a great day. If you want to get a little extra nudge when it comes to following your heart and taking leaps of faith and believing in yourself each day, then you want to sign up for my free daily dose of inspiration email. You'll join 30,000 other subscribers who receive a short inspirational story or anecdote that's meant to inspire you to become the best version of yourself each day. You can sign up at lightwatkins.com and you'll get your first inspirational message as early as tomorrow. Again, Just go to lightwatkins.com. You can sign up for free and you'll wake up each morning inspired to be the best version of yourself.